right, who is up for the challenge that they think they've got the most intense scar in here tonight? Six, at 6 p.m., the ones to beat are Ice Pick Through the Hand. Um, gosh, what was the second one? I was so overwhelmed by the third one, which was 44 Stitches to the Head. So, there you go. But who's got a, who's got a good star, scar story? Right here, young man. <laughs> briar patch thorn through the roof of his mouth when he was seven. Anybody, can anybody beat that? All right, back there. <laughs> um, I, more than life itself, I need to see that. Do you have that on film or anything? He said he got bit by a three-toed sloth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Don't trust them. Don't trust them. They're nasty. Nasty, awful creatures. All right, can anybody beat a bite from a three-toed sloth? Israel? Okay, fair enough. <clears throat> I have a couple scars myself. Um, I have a very small divot underneath my eye because when I was six years old, I thought it was a really good idea at my grandfather's house to hit one stick with another stick over and over again until it bounced back and hit me. Uh, one would think, being from Ireland, I would know how to properly pe peel a potato, but I learned the hard way that you peel away from yourself and not towards yourself, so I've got a little <laughs> scar right there from that. Uh, and my final favorite one is, is, uh, is most recent. I've told some people this story, but in January, we were celebrating a very dear friend's birthday party um, by playing Frisbee at night in the dark, as you do, because that's a good idea. And uh, some of you know Matt's story. He's very athletic, very competitive. And Matt's story's head came up from the darkness, and the back of his skull collided with my lip and wrapped my lip around my front tooth, uh, upon which there was a rush of blood from the head. And I had to go to the ER, and I got one stitch on the inside of my lip and then two on the outside, so I didn't have this nice little lump there. Uh, but it's a, it's a great reminder of what friendship costs us. <laughs> So um, tonight we're going to be talking about scars, um, and it, it, was a, it seemed particularly appropriate for me to write a haiku for tonight. Did anybody else here go to City, um, City, Creative City Project last night? Yeah. Wasn't it fantastic? Yeah. So our very own Andre and several other friends had this, um, had this station where they were inviting us to write poetry. So I wrote um, a haiku for what I want us to talk about tonight. The wounded healer presses holy scars to pain, bringing salvation. The wounded healer presses holy scars to pain, bringing salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we testify to the reality that you are here, that you are present to us, that you are for us, you are not against us. Lord, we, we, we invite your Holy Spirit to continue um, to descend upon us, to fill us from the tops of our heads to the bottom of our feet. Father, would you open us up to receive your truth tonight, Bring everything that we are into this moment, mind, body, and spirit, that we might encounter the real and the living Jesus. And may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever-pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So tonight and next week, we're going to be talking about this idea of the wounded healer. 
What I want us to discuss tonight is what it looks like when Jesus as the wounded healer comes to us and presses his scars into our wounds and brings new healing and new life where there was previously a very different story. And then next week, I want us to talk about how our holy scars are the very places where we share the testimony of what it is that God has done for us and what he desires to do in us and through us for the sake of the world. And so tonight, I want to I look at the stories of two amazing wounded healers in the life of Jesus. The first is going to be Thomas, and then we're going to be looking at Paul. Now, I love Thomas. I love St. Thomas. Often he gets this bad rap. We consider him Thomas the doubter, and, we, and we, he's kind of put up as a poster boy for why we shouldn't doubt. But there's so much more going on in Thomas's story. And so I want us to look at the two very specific places where we have interactions with Thomas. One comes before the resurrection and one comes after. And I want us to look at what is Thomas's mentality, what is his understanding, what is his desire in following Jesus, and how does that in some ways bring him to a place where he desperately needs to encounter the risen Jesus in the midst of his own wounds. So we're going to begin in John chapter 11. This is the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. One of my very favorite stories, especially in the Gospel of John. So several friends from this small village, this small community, that Jesus had visited several times. He'd become very familiar with these people. He was known by them. He was loved by them. Some people come to him and say, um, Jesus, your friend Lazarus, he's fallen very ill. And Jesus' response is to say something. This is an amazing phrase. Like, pull out your Bible and highlight. He says, this sickness will not end in death. But Jesus waits. He waits a couple days. He doesn't immediately go. And then the friends of Lazarus come back to where Jesus is and they say, Lazarus has died. It's too late. And so when we drop into this story in verse 8, we're looking at the disciples' reaction to what it is they've just heard. So Jesus says, now is the time for us to go to the village because this sickness will not end in death. And it says this in verse 8. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back. Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It's when a person walks at night they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Don't you just love the disciples? <laughs> They've got this literalist reading of the Bible. It's so cute. This Jesus is not what Jesus is saying. He said this sickness does not end in death. So as a verse 13, Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Jesus is setting up some sort of teachable moment for the disciples. I'm glad that I wasn't there, so that you might believe through seeing what's about to happen. Jesus, by faith, knows what it is that's about to happen. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, and Didymus means twin, it was a nickname, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Ooh, I love that. I love that. Because the first encounter that we have with Thomas as a personality is not one of a doubter, but a man with very, very strong convictions. 
And we just heard about two deaths. We've heard about Lazarus' death, and then we've also heard about the possibility that Jesus might die if he goes to this place. The disciples say, don't go, because what if they stone you? Which is not so hard for us to imagine. Maybe they're really saying, don't go, because if you go, then we have to go, and then we might get stoned. (laughs) And so there's these two possibilities, one one. Uh, present death and one possible future death. But it's Thomas of all of the disciples that does not question Jesus, but says, let us also go, that we might die with him. What faithfulness, what conviction that Thomas was not, didn't need to question where Jesus might take him, but he was willing to go even to the point of death. You think it speaks so much to the strong convictions that we see in the life of Thomas, that he was so willing to die for Jesus. You know, all of the disciples had their understanding of what Messiah was supposed to be. Some were looking for a political leader who would, who would start up a revolution and overthrow the Roman Empire and boot them out and reestablish Israel. Others were looking for a king in the line of David who would sit on the throne and do very much the same. But what everyone was looking for in Messiah was a conquering Messiah, a triumphant Messiah, a political leader, a religious leader, a royal leader who would come in and by his power and might would overthrow the Roman government and reestablish Israel. I think just in Thomas's words, we see that he has some understanding of who Jesus is, that he's so faithful to him, he's willing to die. I wonder how many of us can say that tonight. How many of us are willing to say, let us go with him? Wherever Jesus goes, I want to be there, even if it means my own death. But I wonder sometimes in Thomas's strong convictions, in being willing to die for Jesus, how much was he willing to live for Jesus as he actually was? And that's what I want us to look at next. Because my friends, I believe a lot of times there is a beautiful root to the woundings in our lives. There's a beautiful root to so many of the struggles that we face in life. Something has become corrupted. Because we step out into this world when we're in a very young age and all we want is to know and to be known. We want to love and to be loved. And it's when we face moments of disillusionment and disappointment and abandonment and rejection that those desires are kind of turned in on ourselves, and they become curses. So we'll continue on in this story in John 11. Going to verse 32, we find Jesus arrives in the village, and he's, he's greeted by all of his friends there. And it says this in verse 32, When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. We've talked about this before, the compassion of Jesus. It's that gut feeling. The word in Greek means for your bowels to clench. And we find that over and over again that Jesus has this gut reaction to what's going on around him. Where have you laid him, he asks. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then we find the smallest, yet one of the perhaps most powerful verses in all of Scripture. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. 
But some of them said, Could he who opens the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? It's important to note here that Jesus, by the gift of faith, knows exactly what is about to happen. He has already set it up in the minds of his disciples. And you've got to remember, Thomas is watching all of this take place. And Jesus knows that Lazarus will rise from the dead. Because remember, Jesus says, I only do what I see my father doing, and I only say what I hear my father saying. And by obedience, Jesus knows what's about to come. But here's Jesus in the midst of, this, of this, his loved ones, these people that he spent time with, that he has cherished, who know him and love him. This man has died, and Jesus weeps. You see, often when we endeavor to live a life of faith, we think that means that we have to remove ourselves emotionally from a moment. That we've got to rise above the difficult situations in life. The the situations that are worth mourning. Because sometimes it's the tears that bind us to the moment. Sometimes it's the tears that allow us for our hearts to meet the hearts of other people. And not in a way to commiserate, but in a way to be fully present. This is the kind of God that we worship. Brandon Manning says this in his book, The Relentless Tenderness of Jesus. When we speak of Jesus Christ as Emmanuel, God with us, we are saying that the greatest lover in history knows what hurts us. Jesus reveals a God who is not indifferent to human agony, a God who fully embraces the human condition and plunges into the thick of our human struggle. This is the God that we worship that Jesus reveals the co-suffering God, the God that comes alongside of us in our pain, who weeps with us. My friends, do you know that the things that hurt you hurt God? And when you weep, he weeps with you. Because we do not worship this pie-in-the-sky prescriptive God who sees us like little machines that just need fixing, who gets frustrated with us when he sees our brokenness and then just writes out a five-step program in order to fix us and get us right so he can approve of us. We We don't worship a prescriptive God. We worship a God of presence, a God of presence. His promise, every promise of God hangs on his presence, his openness to us. Later in the story, this is what we find in the crucifixion of Jesus. A God who's so fully present to his own creation that he's willing to be broken open for it. And you see, all of the disciples in that moment, they all had these preconceived notions of what Messiah is supposed to be, Thomas included in them. And can you imagine the disappointment and the confusion and the hurt when you see your Messiah carted away by Romans? Can you imagine the disillusionment by seeing your Messiah stripped bare and beaten raw? Can you imagine the disillusionment of seeing your Messiah carry his his death machine up a hill and be nailed to it and then to die? This was not the Messiah that they were looking for, my friend. This is not how they thought God was going to reestablish Israel and rescue the world. But this is the God that they witnessed. And this is the God that we encounter today.
there needs to be a Good Friday before there's an Easter Sunday. Amen? There needs to be a breaking open before something new can grow. The only difference between Judas Iscariot and the other 11 is that Judas didn't hang about to meet Jesus again. That's the only difference. But can you imagine for the other 11, walking around in this, in this, in this daze, this confusion, that, that they said, I, I put so much into this. I dedicated three years of my life to see this happen. I saw miracle after miracle. I listened to these amazing messages, this reorientation of everything that we thought about God. And then he died. But that's the place. That's the moment. That's the season. That's the time in which the disciples were actually most beautifully cultivated to be able to receive the risen Jesus. And in John 20, he reveals himself to them. They're gathered together. Maybe they're kind of commiserating with one another, trying to console one another, helping each other process and mourn. And then Jesus enters the room through a door that cannot open. And he reveals himself to them. And when we pick up in, in, in John 20, in verse, 30, or in verse 24, we find that Thomas was not originally with them. And it says this, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I will not believe. What is, what is Thomas saying to us? What is he saying to his brothers? He's saying, this mattered so much to me that I'm not going to take it on a rumor. That man mattered so much to me, I'm not willing just to accept someone's testimony as good enough. I was willing to die for him. I gave up everything for him. I believed in everything he said, and unless I see him, unless I have an experience of him that I'm able to touch and to feel and to receive, it, nothing will be good enough for me. It's amazing that we consider Thomas the doubter. Because perhaps he's the one that had such a very specific and finite but bold and convicted faith. Say, it's not good enough for me to live on a rumor. I need the experience. I need the encounter. Verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Now, don't you just love the Lord's timing? In the story of Lazarus, Jesus waits two days before he goes to raise him. And in the moment of Thomas' disillusionment and disappointment and anger and conviction, Jesus waits a week before he reveals himself. Jesus' timing in our healing is perfection, and we have to trust in it. Because he's doing something in the hidden places that is cultivating in us the the ability to come open-handed to receive what he's about to offer. And so a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Which you need to say if you just floated through a locked door. (laughs) Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. 
You think Jesus wasn't in the room the first time? Because he knew exactly what Thomas was asking. And this is the place where this story has been told to us too often, where we anticipate the kind of God that we would craft, the kind of God that carves out the kind of justice that we think that we deserve. And it's the Jesus that marches, bursts open the door, marches into the room, sticks his finger in, in, in Thomas's face and says, I can't believe you. I can't believe the testimony of your brothers and sisters wasn't good enough. I'm ashamed of you. Look how much doubt you have. Look how much unbelief you have. You see, too often, we make Jesus in our image. And it's sometimes it's the Jesus that we want to have, and sometimes it's the Jesus that we're afraid of, but it's been offered to us by other people. But they both fall short of the reality of the real and the living and the present Jesus. Jesus does not come up to us in our unbelief and our lack of faith and point his finger in our face and say, I can't believe you. That is not our Jesus. That is not the God that is revealed in Christ Jesus. What Jesus do we have? We have the Jesus that comes to us in our disillusionment, in our disappointment, in our abandonment, and our rejection, and he does not chastise us for it. He does not rebuke us for it. He says, no, 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 no. Look at my hands. Put your fingers in my side. Jesus literally invites Thomas into his wounds, the wounds that he took on our behalf, the wounds he took on Thomas's behalf. Jesus is broken open to receive us in wounds and all. And I can't help but think that that is the healing balm that Thomas needed for his disappointment and his disillusionment and his abandonment. And yes, even the idolatry he had of who he thought Jesus was. To be able to touch the wounds, to see the scars, to be invited into those scars. And what is his response? Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Again, Jesus does not say, I wish you'd believe me the first time. Jesus doesn't roll his eyes at Thomas. He says, no, 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 because you've seen me, you've believed. And guess what? Because you've believed, you've been blessed. But there's an even greater challenge, Thomas, and that's to believe without seeing. You see, Jesus meets us where we're at, but his grace is always seeking to empower us to the next place. And it's not out of rebuke, and it's not out of chastisement. It's not out of diminishing us, but it's meeting us where we are and inviting us higher. And that is our Jesus. That is our God. It's not rebuke, but it is invitation to allow Jesus' scars to be pressed up against our wounds, our emotional wounds, our spiritual wounds. Because the risen Jesus' power begins and ends with the wounded and co-suffering God that doesn't come to give prescriptions on how to fix us, but gives us his very presence, steps into the muck and the mire of human existence. It's compassion and forgiveness that motivates Jesus. We are not problems to be solved by God, but dearly loved children awaiting the transformation of encounter. We feel like we need to hide our wounds 
from Jesus. We feel like we need to pretend like they don't exist. We need to put them away to hide them from him because he won't approve, because it means that we're not good enough, because maybe it means that he hasn't had the victory yet or whatever it might be, because we think that we're some sort of a machine that God's just trying to fix so that he can use us, that he can take advantage of us. But God doesn't sit at a distance and observe and then just write a few things down on a piece of paper and hand it to us. But he meets us with his very presence. And there's so much to be said about Thomas's response, my Lord and my God. Because it's the moment in Thomas's life where Jesus is fully revealed as he truly is. Not a version of Messiah, not a version of Son of God, not a custom-tailored Jesus, but in all of his wild and beautiful glory that he's able to say, my Lord, my King, and my God. Of all of the disciples, Thomas went the geographical farthest for the gospel. In AD 52, in Muzaris, India, he established a community which exists to today. Legend has it that in the 13th century, Portuguese missionaries came to India and they entered into these villages and began to teach them about Jesus. And these Indians said, yeah, we know. (laughs) What? Yeah, 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 we know. And they began to tell these stories of St. Thomas who would come from the West, who had brought the good news, who had performed signs and wonders and preached the gospel and established this community in India that's one of the oldest continually existing Christian communities in the world. And I can't help but wonder if it's in that moment when Thomas said, my Lord and my God, that he came to that full conviction by the transforming encounter he had with Jesus that he was willing to go. He was willing to die for Jesus but now he was willing to live for him as well. Do we hang our identities on our wounds? Or do we hang our identities on the healing that we've received according to Christ Jesus? I want now to turn to the story of St. Paul. We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 3. This is no confidence in our flesh wounds. This is what Paul's talking about here. No confidence in our flesh wounds. And and Paul's going to be talking about a lot of fleshly things that are very easy for us to hang our identities on. He says this, beginning in verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. What is Paul talking about in these mutilators of the flesh? There were, there were these men coming into all of these communities. We call them Judaizers. And they're saying, the gospel that, that Paul preached to you about the coming Messiah, yes, it's true, but it's only half a gospel. It's only half the gospel. You have to take up the Torah. You have to take up all of the rules and the regulations, and you have to continue to live a Jewish life in order to receive salvation. And the mark of that was circumcision. Let's take a poll and see how many people in here are circumcised. Just kidding. Just kidding. We're not going to do that. Your secret is safe with me. Circumcision was a physical mark that established people in an elite tribe. 
that set them apart from everyone else. And it was God's establishment through Abraham that the mark of circumcision means these are my holy people. These are the people that are going to be set aside, that are the vehicle through which I'm going to rescue the world. But we know that that promise was fulfilled through Jesus. And so what Paul says here and what he says elsewhere is that kind of circumcision, that kind of physical mark, that kind of wound has no more relevance anymore. And if we attach our identity to that kind of wound, we step into the same issues that Israel has had of being about being an elitist tribe. That it's us over here and them over there. And you've got to do it right like us. You've got to follow the rules like us. You have to mutilate your flesh like us. In Galatians, Paul even says, and as for those mutilators of the flesh, I just wish they'd go the whole way. Cut the whole thing off. Because circumcision is nothing. It doesn't mean anything anymore. And he says here, for it is we who are the circumcision. We are the ones that have been marked. We are the ones that have received the wound that sets us apart, who serve God by his spirit, not by the law, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, even the flesh wounds. He says this, though I myself have reasons for confidence. You see, now Paul's going about to say, so you want to talk about scars. You want to talk about wounds. You want to talk about little marks that we've received in this world that we attach our identity on. He says, okay, let's play that game. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, flawless. Do you realize what Paul's saying? He's saying of the 613 laws in the Old Testament, Kobe nailed it. He's saying, I did it perfectly. I followed all the rules. In this list, he says, of my confidence in the flesh, he's, he's, he's using all of these elitist excuses and saying, I was born of the right people group that priv- overprivileges me above all of the Gentiles. I went to the right school. I got the right kind of education. We believe that Paul was even on track to become the high priest. And so when he says in regard to the law of Pharisees, saying, I had the best interpretation of the law. When he says, as for zeal, he means, I read my Bible, and my Bible literally told me to kill heretics. And so that's what I did. And then as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. All of these things that, that Saul before he became Paul, before he encountered Jesus, before he received the divine wound upon which he could hang his identity. All of these things had built up as these flesh wounds, confidence in his flesh, in the markings that he had received from culture and from religion and all of these other things. And in verse 7 he says this, but... Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. As it says so often, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. A new kind of relationship. A living relationship based on faith. Verse 10, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Amen. All of the flesh wounds that I have received from the world, the things that mark me as special and privileged and better than other people and smarter than other people and in the right place at the right time, it means nothing compared to the surpassing glory that we have in Christ Jesus. To know the power of his resurrection that God through his Holy Spirit empowers us, bringing us to new life and and the participation in his sufferings. Because guess what? We're going to be wounded by this world. As, as, As Christians, as little Christs, to participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, means that we are going to be broken open by the world. Just like Christ Jesus. But we have to trust that somehow that is the way that we attain the resurrection from the dead. My friends, every Easter Sunday needs a Good Friday moment. And so we let go of the old wounds that we've hung our identity on. And we allow Jesus to reveal himself in those wounds. And that becomes our definition. That becomes how we see our worth. Jesus heals us in a way no amount of positive thinking and self-help programs can. Let me read that to you again, and I want a big old amen if you agree. Jesus heals us in a way no amount of positive thinking and self-help programs can. Listen, the gospel is not good advice. The gospel is not a series of steps that you do in order to make a better life for yourself. The gospel is not one option among many others in order to help you get ahead so that you're healthier and happier and you get everything that you want. The gospel is a declaration that the world is different now. That something has changed because God has revealed himself through the death and resurrection of his son, Christ Jesus, and the kingdom of God is advancing. And you better be ready for that train, baby, when it comes. The gospel is a declaration that things have changed. And then comes the invitation. Not to see it as one option among others. Not to, to, to take it in and consider maybe we want to change the way we live and maybe not, and we'll just pick little bits that help us live a happier life. But the gospel says Jesus Christ is Lord. God has been made himself king of this world. Are you going to agree with that or not? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. You see, those existential wounds, those deep down wounds about our identity, about our source, 
about what we are to be in the world and what we're to do, those cannot be healed by just positive thinking. They can't be healed by reading a book. They can't be healed by just going to a seminar and learning some tricks of the trade to help us get ahead. Those those kinds of attitudes, those ways of being in the world, it's like taking glue and rusty staples and trying to fix an open wound yourself. The wound is still brittle, and it will likely become infected. In the 15th century, there was a Japanese shogun called Ashimasa Yoshikasa, And he sent a broken T-bowl over to China to be repaired. And when they sent it back to him, they had used these ugly metal staples to staple this T-bowl back together. And Yoshikasa was so disappointed by the way that it looked that he invited all these Japanese artisans to come together and he said, look at this, do something better. Come up with a better solution than this. And so what the artisans did is they, be, they mixed in resin and gold and they created this special glue and they began to weave that gold into the cracks of these broken pots and it became known as the Japanese art of kintsugi. And it becomes a foundation in Japanese aesthetics. Because you see, when we talk about perfection, we think that means pristine. No marks, no stains, nothing is wrong with it, everything's perfect. But you see, for the Japanese, perfection is about the story that's told in the piece. Amen? You see, when the piece has been broken apart by the the, the brokenness of the world, gold is woven into the wounds and it becomes more valuable than it was before. It becomes more valuable than it was before because the wounds tell a story. The wounds point to something greater than what it initially was. They say shortly thereafter when they invented this, people actively broke their pots in order to increase their value. Is this not the perfect analogy for what it looks like for us to receive healing in Christ Jesus? We've been broken apart by the world. We've been broken apart by our flesh. We've been broken apart by the enemy. But when we encounter Christ Jesus, we're broken open for the world. And he begins to weave gold into our wounds. And he begins to allow our wounds to become holy scars that tell a whole different kind of story. Because all our scars tell stories. All of our scars tell stories. I believe that we receive and we keep our scars on this side of the resurrection, on this side of the death, of death precisely so that we can share those stories with the world. That our identities are no longer attached to the wounds we've received from the world, but our identities are attached to the hope and the healing that we've received in the midst of that wound. And we've allowed that wound to be touched by Jesus. That Jesus' holy scars have been pressed into our wounds in such a way that it creates gold. And it begins to tell a whole different story. And next week, I want us to talk about how we share our stories with the world in a way that it points to the glory of God and the hope and the healing that we have in Christ Jesus. But what I want us to do right now 
is I want us to take a moment and allow the Lord to engage with us. We're going to invite the Holy Spirit to open us up a little bit, to show us our wounds. We're going to ask this question. In your story, in your story, what are the open wounds that still beg for the healing touch of Jesus? My friends, you don't have to be afraid of exposing your wounds to Jesus. He's not going to rebuke you. He's not going to chastise you. He's not going to point his finger in your face and accuse you of anything. But when you come before Lord Jesus, King Jesus, the God revealed, and you open up your wounds of disillusionment, of disappointment, of abandonment, of rejection, and you open those to him, you name them, he's going to press his holy scars into those places. And he's going to weep with you and he's going to say, you know what? Me too. Me too. Everything that you're saying, everything that you felt, everything you've encountered, me too. But let me bring healing. Let me bring healing. Because we worship a God of presence. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, in this moment, we invite you to send your Holy Spirit to fill us from the tops of our heads to the bottoms of our feet. Would you inspire us, put your Spirit in us to take us by the hand and to walk us into the wounded places in our own lives. Through your Holy Spirit, Jesus, would you point to those wounds and would you name them? And would you call them forward? Would you invite them out from the hidden places and the places of shame and the places of guilt? Would you give them a name so that we can offer them up to you for your healing touch? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Just take a moment. Just sit with him. Let him speak to you. Do not be afraid. Be strong and courageous. Let him speak to you. Thank you, Lord. going to invite some of our leaders to come over here on the side. And our, and our leaders, they're wounded healers. These are people that have been broken apart by the world, but have in some way met the risen Jesus, who's invited healing into their lives, into their wounds. 
and in this next portion during worship, if you want someone to lay hands on you, to come alongside of you, to be able to say, me too, yet to be able to help point you to the hope and healing that we have in Jesus, they are more than willing to do that. So I invite you to stand with me, please. Father God, it's all about your presence. It's all about your presence. It's all about your presence. Nothing else matters, Lord. It's garbage. It's worthless. Father, as we step into this time, would you consider and continue to move in us and through us, to name our wounds, to invite them forward, because these sicknesses will not end in death. Because we need encounter, because we're your children, because you desire to give it to us. Thank you, Father God. May all things be unto your glory. 